Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. For most of us, our gardens are spaces we create for ourselves, for our families and friends. But how often do we consider the needs of all the other species who inhabit those same spaces? My guest, Benjamin Vogt, designs gardens that use native plants only, and therefore are sustainable and honor the needs of all native wildlife, which includes animals, birds, and insects, not just those of humans. For Vogt, this is a matter of social justice. Vogt is a former professor of poetry who lives in eastern Nebraska, where he designs prairie gardens. He's an author and speaker, not just on landscape design, but on garden ethics. His newest book is A New Garden Ethic, Cultivating Defined Compassion for an Uncertain Future. The book challenges us to develop empathy for other species and to build gardens that demonstrate caring and compassion for all. Early in the book, Vogt makes a statement which seems quite obvious, but which is also provocative. He says the natural world does not need us. I asked him to talk about that. I think our species has a tendency to be very aggressive micromanagers. And sometimes that's because we're trying to extract fossil fuels from the ground. And sometimes that's because we're loving our garden plants too much and our helicopter parenting our our gardens too much. Um, Nature does not need us to direct its path not even necessarily to heal it um, with all the damage that we've we've caused it, even though there are lots of things we do need to do to help it heal. So when I say nature does not need us, what I'm saying is nature does not need us to be a leader for it or to be an an organizer uh, to give it direction. And that goes against a lot of garden design philosophy because gardens, by, by their very definition, are humans creating this artistic order and, and recreating nature according to some aesthetic goal. So in, in my book, I'm really trying to dismantle gardening in a lot of ways and, and refocus it um, towards some new 21st century goals to address climate change and mass extinction. Speaking of gardens, uh, I happen to live in a subdivision where the gardens consist of lawns and some trees, maybe a few bushes close to a house. Uh, my own garden is different in that it's a permaculture garden in the making, and I use about not 100%, but 90% native, um, including a wildflower flower meadow, uh, native trees and bushes. Um, and to me, lawns are anathema. Yet every subdivision has acres of manicured lawns. We just uh, visited our son in Memphis and went through um, subdivision after subdivision with literally miles of lawns. Um, And I know that you feel strongly about lawns, so I'm interested in what you have to say. I feel strongly about lawns. (laughs) That's putting it mildly. yeah, it it is depressing, isn't it, to drive through mm-hmm. these these miles and miles of of suburban su- subdivisions and just see this monoculture. A monoculture, by its very definition, is not healthy. And then we go and we slather fertilizers and and, and herbicides and pesticides all over it, which makes it even worse, especially when rainfall runs off of it into our storm drains and our ponds and our lakes and our rivers. Then we have these lawnmowers droning all the time, spewing out these toxic chemicals that 
that uh, increase hypertension and, and lower sperm counts. So if you're a guy out there listening and you're trying to procreate, stop mowing your lawn, right? Uh, so, so yeah, we, we, we and you know, the, these, these are dead zones. Uh, a lawn, I hear people argue a lot of time that, well, a lawn's better than concrete and asphalt, right? Because it is, it, it, it is working to clean the air. It, it's, it is working to filter some water down into the soil. And, you know, that's just when I, I flip out and run down the street ranting or waving my hands because lawn roots only go down, really go down a couple of inches. Um, we keep lawns at, you know, two to four inches. If we're lucky, people mow it four, but everybody in my neighborhood probably mows at an inch and a half. So we do not have very long blades, so they can't possibly be doing that much good as far as cleaning the air and, and cooling the air. So yeah, these, these lawns, I, I am definitely an enigma in my neighborhood where I can probably count the number of trees my neighbors have on, on one hand and the number of shrubs on two hands. And here I am with probably 2,000 plants in my front yard. You're listening to Mothering Earth. My name is Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Benjamin Vogt, who is a garden designer and author. And we're talking about his book, A New Garden Ethic. In the book, you talk about the concept of beauty. And you say we need to rethink our ideas about beauty, uh, especially in a garden. Can you uh, explain that? Yeah, I, th I think just piggybacks on what I was saying a couple minutes ago. Um, when I sign a lot of my books, I actually write in them "rethink pretty," and the whole that that whole mantra means we need to stop thinking of gardens and designed and managed landscapes around homes and businesses and schools as something that exists purely or primarily for humans. Whether whether that goal is an, an aesthetic goal or if it's a practical goal, like um, you know, just trying to screen something, add some privacy. Our managed and designed gardens are not just for us. We need to at least be thinking 50-50 about how our landscapes are not just for me, the gardener, me, the personal, this is my house, but my neighbors. And then even further, my neighbors, which include spiders and birds and, and snakes and soil organisms. We need to be choosing plants that wildlife are adapted and evolved with so they can use them to procreate and, and have new generations, new progeny coming forth. Uh, we need to have landscapes that are taller and lusher, that are going to clean the air more, that are going to cool the air more, that are going to sequester more carbon, that are going to filter more rainfall. Because I don't know how it is by you guys, but we don't seem to get nearly as often these nice, steady, all-day soaking rains. It's four inches in an hour and mm -hmm. need to be having these more complex, biodiverse landscapes that can absorb that. You know, a, a mature prairie and um, can take nine inches of rain. So if you get a nine-inch rainfall during the day, a mature prairie with those roots going down 15 feet, all in all kinds of different depths and structures of roots, that can absorb the water and, and stop runoff, which is why we have some farmers in the – there's a strips program in Iowa where they're doing strips of prairie along farm fields in, in the middle along the edges that will slow erosion and slow runoff. And I think we can employ the same thing in urban areas. So there's a, there's a lot of nuance here to what rethink pretty means. Right. Right. And when you're talking about prairie, is that largely grasses that have these long roots? Well, grasses and flowers. Uh, okay. Actually, I would say probably in general, I, I would say forbs uh, or flowers have have deeper roots. Some of them do. You know, so, some of the some of the grasses and flowers will only go down a couple feet. Some will go down 10 to 15 feet um, mm -hmm. over the span of their lifetime. So there, there is a lot of variety. 
All right. Um, now, again, from the book, you say we are colonizers who replace the culture of the oppressed with the culture of the oppressor. And these are certainly strong words, but they uh, make sense to me. And I recently had a, an experience of being the oppressor. Uh, I saw caterpillars eating my passion vine and uh, got really upset. Uh, began actually stepping on a few. Uh, then I stopped and I said, "I said, you know, let me check and see what these are." <laughs> and in the end, I found out they are uh, Gulf fritillary uh, oh. butterfly caterpillars, oh, my. and that is in fact their host plant. Yeah. And so they were just doing what they were meant to do, and it was a real lesson for me. So, how do we learn to think about the needs of other species? And we're, we're, we're always asked to, you know, even you think we're growing up and you have a sibling and our parents ask us, you know, how do you think your brother or sister feels when you do X or when you say Y? Well, even our spouses mm -hmm. say that, right? My, my wife's like, right. you know, how do you think I feel when you don't put the dishes away? <laughs> Happy? No. So, so it's, it's really just, uh, I think we have, we're so used as gardeners. We, we, we've been raised in a culture where you, you reach for the spray first. You, you reach for it defending the plant first because it's your plant you spent 10 to $15 on. Um, you own it and you want to keep it safe and you want to keep it healthy. And, and sometimes the safest and healthiest thing to do is to let it be damaged. You, you, you want to see that damage. So we all have these moments like you had with, with the butterfly. I, I had it with monarchs. Um, we all we all have these sort of awakenings, and I don't think I don't think they happen as quickly or or as soon as we probably need them to in our gardening lives. But it's a very it's a very radical thing to ask people to think about others first. It's radical enough when it's a human being asked to think about another human first. You know what what are their needs? Right. Where are they coming from? But then to say, okay, think about it from a bird or an insect's perspective, it's a really massive leap. But I think if you can make the really massive leap, you, it's going to be a lot easier um, when you need to make that leap with our own species. You also talked about uh, speci speciesism. I don't know if I'm saying that right. No, that sounds good. Um, speciesism. Speciesism. <laughs> and, um, and, and how you connect it to racism, which yeah. is kind of a radical idea as well. Yeah. Uh, and especially right now, right? <laughs> especially with mm -hmm. the last month exactly. or so. Right. Um, I, the, these the, these things come from from the same root. I'm not saying they're the same thing necessarily, but they definitely come from the same root. When you when you think that you are are better than someone else, or that your concerns should come first, that's that's an ism, right? That can be a speciesism, that can be a racism, that can be classism, that can be sexism. Um, when you're unable to empathize with another person or another creature, that's when these isms start to come in. Uh, if you if you ever read anything by ecofeminists, um, they are they are all over this idea that sexism and and what we're doing to the environment is all deeply interrelated, and one affects the other and is affected by the other. Um, it's really fascinating philosophy, ecofeminism, and then and then deep ecology plays a hand in that too. All right. Um, so yeah. So it's it's about thinking beyond yourself. Basically, I guess. Well, not you know. Um, I I talk and, about human supremacy and human privilege a lot in my book right. and all all my right. writings, and that's when you put yourself over somebody else. When your concerns are first, like when you pick a plant in your garden that you find is pretty, but that other species clearly aren't 
aren't using as a host plant or they're not nectaring or gathering pollen on it very much much who who has the privilege where right. where is the speciesism there so i'm trying to get people to think about choosing plants that are that have massive benefit for others before ourselves and in that way we actually have more benefit than we realize you're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Benjamin Vogt, a garden designer and author. And we're talking about his book, A New Garden Ethic. Uh, but right now, it's time for a break. We're back now. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Benjamin Vogt, garden designer and author of A New Garden Ethic, his uh, latest book. And a lot of your book is about the importance of using native plants. Uh, but what is a native plant? Can you give me any kind of a definition of that? My loose definition is plants that existed here before European colonization. Now, that doesn't mean that Native American tribes were not manipulating the environment because, of course, they were, but not nearly to the extent as what happened once European colonization really, really ramped up. So why are native plants so important? Uh, for, for several reasons. Uh, the, the biggest reason is, is that a lot of wildlife, especially insects and bugs, um, have adapted to use native plants as host plants. Obvious examples as butterflies, like the Gulf Fritillary mm -hmm. and, and the monarch butterfly. Right. Um, but if you look at milkweed, even we have milkweed bugs and, and milkweed beetles and all kinds of other things that are using it as a host plant. So you're going to have these relationships that have that have co-evolved for thousands, tens of thousands of years and, and, and even longer. So when you bring in a non-native plant, it may or may not be able to support these populations. So that's 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 one reason. Uh, another right. reason is that we also have oh native bee species. We have some almost four thousand native bee species, bee species in the United States, and uh, a lot of them have co-evolved to, to time their life cycle. So when they emerge and procreate and lay eggs, they've timed their life cycle for when certain species of flowers are blooming. So a lot of our native bees are thus specialists. They will only use pollen from certain species. So uh, goldenrods, asters, geraniums, uh, golden alexanders, plants like that. So we may have some bee species that only you only see them flying around for two to four weeks while they're gathering the pollen because um, they're going to be all solitary. They have their eggs back somewhere cached in the ground or in a cavity in a tree, and then their larva will grow and that emerges adults later on. So that's number two on why, why native plants are important. And the third point why native plants are important is because they have, they have evolved in the climate. And even though, so if you're using plants native to your ecoregion, you know, whether, whether you're around New Orleans or you're up in Portland, Maine or Minneapolis or uh, Los Angeles, you want to be using plants native to the area because they will stand, stand a better chance at being adaptable to the pressures we're putting on them via climate change. So these extremes of wet and dry and, and hot and cold. Right. And that will also give, that will also hopefully give some species a chance to adapt and evolve with those plants alongside them, though 
most things are not going to be able to adapt and evolve quick enough to survive. You're listening to Mothering Earth. My name is Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Benjamin Vogt, garden designer and author of A New Garden Ethic. Um, you were just talking about native bees, and um, it seems like what we hear about most often is about honeybees. Um, how, how are those different, and, and why aren't we hearing about the native bees? Honeybees are are livestock. They're chickens. Native bees are, you know, wild birds, grassland birds, songbirds. So um, honeybees, number one, honeybees are not in trouble. Number two, we, are, we put so much stress on, on honeybees, driving them around the country to pollinate crops. Honeybees aren't nearly as effective at pollinating as a lot of our native bees, including bumblebees and mason bees. Um, so, so if we had almond orchards and, and strawberry fields surrounded and interlaced with, with um, hedgerows and trees and grasslands and meadows, we would be able to support the native bees that would do a much better job at pollinating much more efficiently and provide actually more fruit and better fruit. So when we hear about honeybees, that's really an agricultural issue, an, an industrial agricultural issue. It is not an environmental issue. It's, it's the native bees that, that, that are the linchpin to a healthy ecosystem, whether that's flower production or vegetable and food crop production. A good portion of your book, or at least a chapter, is on compassion and how it develops in humans. That was a very interesting uh, chapter, I thought. Uh, and on how our minds work so that we're able to ignore situations that clearly should arouse our compassion. So since developing compassion for plant and animal cultures is central to your book, you suggest ways in which, uh, in which we can do that. Can you elaborate on that? Well, it's, it, it starts with empathy. Empathy is basically just understanding that this other creature has these needs and wants, has, has needs and wants, and that they just want to fulfill them. Most, most life just wants to have a safe home, have some food, and, and carry out their lives, right? So, so empathy is, is really basic, but that's, that's even hard to get to. So and, and c- compassion is the next level after empathy where you're like, okay, I understand that these butterflies need this host plant. They, they lay their eggs on it and, and, and their larvae eat it. And if we don't have it, that's a problem. So what am I going to do about it? Well, you know what? I'm going to go buy those 20 acres and I'm going to put prairie seed all over it. Um, or I'm going to rip up all, all my lawn and, 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 and do some beautiful, thick, biodiverse gardens there. So compassion is really a very radical act that we can take, not just for other species, but, but for other, ple- you know, we were talking about isms before, any of those isms, having mm-hmm. compassion is a very radical act. Right. Um, so in general, your book really challenges us to rethink a lot of what we've taken for granted uh, and a lot of it we've talked about here. Uh, but one of it, it uh, one of them that I think you referred to early on is that humans are dominant and superior and we should decide how gardens are designed and how they function. Um, and, and a line that I, I really liked was you point out that land uh, is not a commodity, but a community that should be loved and respected. Um, could you talk more about that? 
well, idea? That's, that's that's Aldo Leopold. If you want me to talk more about that, we'll have to read his book, A Sand County Almanac, because okay. that's that that's where everything is coming from. He he is such he is such a leader for so many um, environmentalists and conservationists, and I think even more garden designers and landscape architects. So. Yeah, we 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 have to see ourselves as part of a web of life, and and that's very difficult for us to do. Right, and and also just the the whole idea that land is something you own, and therefore you can do whatever you want with it, and it should benefit you. Uh, but the idea of the community is I, I don't know. For me, it was it was it was a wonderful way to state something that I've thought about very often. Um, I mean, if, yeah. if you are if you are privileged enough to quote unquote own a piece of land, whether that's a quarter of an acre or ten thousand acres, it is your it is your ethical and moral responsibility to find a way to to leave it better than than you found it. Right. And that's definitely directly coming from Aldo Leopold, but it's also definitely directly coming from me. Um, if so, when, when we moved in here at our house, it was it was a new house and. Of course, we were going to have lawn around our house. I didn't know anything back then, so we just put in lawn like everybody else. Um, but now I have I have torn out ninety percent of it. Now to my neighbors, you know, they're going to look at my landscape and be like, "Okay, sure, you can do whatever you want because you own that one quarter acre lot in suburbia, <laughs> but it looks nothing like anybody else's lot, and therefore you're you're weird and you're strange and you're outcast." And every two years, we're going to call weed control on you. Um, so it's 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 when, when you when you take out your lawn, it is an act. I, it's an act of radical compassion. It's not. I'm just not thinking. You know, I'm not thinking. Boy, I would really like a bunch of flowers. I want to put a bunch of flowers out there. I'm thinking, what kind of flowers am I going to put there? What kind of species? How am I going to make it look like, act like, what ecosystem was here before this was a suburban subdivision? But how can I also make it aesthetically appealing to humans? To, to some degree, there has to be, there has to be some so, sort of legibility to humans to even begin to interpret it as a purposeful landscape and not just a bag of weed seed thrown out. Right, right. And I would guess that's a big part of what you do in your garden design. Uh, of course, and and sometimes it's easy, and sometimes it's not. Oh heck, it's never easy. Forget that. Um, <laughs> so. I am definitely trying to design landscapes that that look like a short grass or tall grass prairie. Um, but mm -hmm. one of the ways, if you just go out, it, it's funny to me because if if most people just go out to a prairie and start walking it, they don't sit there and I don't think most people would say, wow, this is weedy and messy. This needs to be mowed down. But if you put that in a suburban development, that's exactly what people say. So my challenge right. is how what plants do I use? Where do I put them and how do I arrange them? And some of the things I do is keep short plants close to sidewalks and driveways, have masses and drifts of plants. So I might have 20 nodding allium in a drift and a clump of five purple cone flowers and, and repeat these things throughout the landscape. So there's this repetition and this legibility and even having a pathway going through a wilder prairie landscape or a bench or a water feature or a sculpture of me. These are all things that are sort of cues to, cues to care show intention right. right and and do you have uh any kind of a problem with or, or i'm assuming when clients call you they already understand that so it's not a matter of you're having to educate them 
Oh, we still have that conversation because I think you need to have that conversation. And I think it just it just comes up when you're on site visiting with them those, that first time. And, you know, you just you just want to be clear with your clients. Usually, I would say nine times out of 10, when people contact me, they are ready. They are on board with everything. And a lot of people just say, I trust you. I've seen your pictures. I've seen your designs. Just do what you're going to do, which is just like the most awesome thing anybody could say to you when you're a garden designer. Just do what you want. Right. Take care of it. Um, but we still, we still walk through things and we still, we still explain that, um, this is how we need to manage the space. And this is how we, we need to make it legible, especially if it's in a front yard. And, and even if it's in a backyard behind a fence, you still have to be careful. People are going to look and people are going to wonder. And, um, I tell a lot of clients too, let's, let's get a sign out there. Even if it's a simple sign that says this is a native plant pollinator landscape. In the book, you talked about being angry and... Uh, despairing, which you don't—you certainly don't sound like that right now. I start with anger. This this book started with me literally ranting on my blog and just very, very people would say overpassionately um, describing the benefits of native plants and saying, "Look, all you garden designers, all you landscape architects, we have got to stop using you and hybrid tea roses." And, and so, so we, we have, we have to rethink this now. We have to do something now. This is, this is ridiculous and stupid. That, that is where the book came from me just being angry okay. and then full of despair. And then, okay, what am I going to do about it? How can I put this stuff? How can I put this stuff out there for others to engage with and think with? Because I don't think they are, or they're just not doing it as consciously as I, as I really wish they would or hope they would. Get the book, A New Garden Ethic by Benjamin Vogt. Please tell people you know about this podcast, and thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news.